Father, it is with great humility, great joy that we come into your presence this morning. I'm thankful for the worship team reminding us of uh, equally how free we are in you, God, how amazing your grace and your forgiveness and your redemption truly is. But, Father, it is, it is also deeply humbling, Lord. I mean, to be, to be counted worthy of your kingdom, worthy of your service, worthy of, I mean, more than that, Lord, worthy of your name and your image, your likeness. That's big, Father. Father, thank you for giving us this journey through Exodus together where we have been reminded, confronted, encouraged, humbled, all of the above, Lord, of who you are and who you have made us to be. Um, because, God, that is not something to take lightly. That's not a something to assume we've got it and move on from, Lord. In fact, as your word is going to show us today, that in and of itself is what sets us apart. That's what makes us right with you. That's what you've asked us to do on behalf of you in this world. May you just continue to show us who you are, God, that we might know who we are. In your name we pray. Amen. We are in Exodus 33 this morning, church. We're continuing our, our kind of walk through the golden calf story. If you guys remember last week, uh, we talked a little bit about weddings, a little bit about what weddings looked like in the Hebrew culture. We said that all that had been taking place kind of from about halfway through Genesis building up to this moment was like a big wedding ceremony getting ready to happen. God kind of courting his people, teaching them what it means to be the people of God. And we said last week in chapter 32 that that, if you were following the, the imagery, that should have been like the honeymoon night. And instead, God, using the wedding analogy, kind of walks in and catches his bride with somebody else. And how, how jarring of a moment that is. Why the story of the golden calf is such a big deal. Why it's here in the Old Testament. And what we're going to see this week, uh, we talked a lot last week about what does the story teach us about us, about God, about Jesus and this Messiah that he's given us. Uh, we saw that this is... In a nutshell, what sin has done to you and me, it's, it's basically made us as unfaithful brides, right? That, that God made us for a purpose. God made us for a life. He made us to be with him. And what sin has done in breaking that is it, it just it makes us these unfaithful, uh, I mean, I think the big word my grandfather used to use was philanderers, something like that. Just people who would go run around with whoever. And yet we saw last week, too, how our God is it's a very gracious God. I mean, just the fact that he's, he's right to be angry, he's right to be jealous of his image in us that's kind of being taken elsewhere, that he's not consumed by it, right? That there is a mercy, there is a grace in who God is to continue to work with Israel. In fact, what he does and what we start to see in Moses last week is he sends one who's going to work to bring the two back together. Right? He's going to send this Messiah figure, the one who will intercede on behalf of the, the Israelites who have sinned, and then on God who is you know, righteously angry, righteously jealous, but who's going to ultimately take his people back. And we're kind of 
introduced to some things that are going to be really big today, church. Because in Exodus 33, I love this is where the light bulb finally goes off. Okay? You, we've been getting glimpses all throughout the book of what God is wanting to do in his Messiah figure, what God would do in Jesus. We've been getting glimpses of that in Moses. And we've, we've been hearing God kind of talk about this heart he wants his people to have in Israel. And we've seen little bits and pieces of it, but nothing really consistent, nothing really concrete until today. It's, it's weird to kind of introduce a turning point this late in the story, uh, unless you're a, a true crime fan, uh, because you realize in listening to those podcasts or watching those documentaries, they don't really get to the turning point till the very, very end. Uh, so it, it's almost fitting. Here we are in chapter 33. There's 40 chapters in Exodus. We're almost to the end. But uh, we're getting the turning point here because this is like, this is the moment where Israel finally gets it. They don't, they don't, they don't seem to do a lot, which I also love for a bunch of other reasons why when they get it, it's not that they're doing so much. We'll just pay attention to what Israel does in this chapter, church, and pay attention to what Moses does, because this is really going to give us some parallels for who are we, like who's the church, but also who are Christians today? What are we supposed to do? What's this heart we're supposed to have, and what does that do with us? And the big picture we're going to work over today, of everything, we were made to be in God's presence. There's a lot of things we can do, there's a lot of realities about who we are. But we were made to be in God's presence. And because that's who we are, what do we do? We work toward restoration in his covenant. So who are we? We were made to be in God's presence. What do we do? Sorry, it feels like a, that's something you give before a sports team. But who are we? Made to be in God's presence. What do we do? We work toward restoration restoration of his covenant. We're beginning in Exodus chapter 33 with verse 1. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring I will give it. Now I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on any of his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend, and it would stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people, so this is the Israelites, they would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. 
Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When the Moses turned aside into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Fathers, we are opening our hearts and our minds to your word this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us and lead us, Father, to understand your word, to understand uh, what to do with it, God, how to live it out today. Um, may we just see you in your story. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So guys, Exodus 33 begins uh, right after Exodus 32 ends with God sending a plague on the people because they made the calf, right? So Israel is being punished. They're in the middle of their punishment because of their idolatry. And God is now starting to work with his people to say, okay, look, I'm not going to be angry with you forever. I'm not going to punish you forever. I'm going to show you what restoration looks like. Like, what does it mean to be brought back together? And so the very first thing he goes and he does with them is he shows them kind of this tension that he's walking through, right? There's the hurt, the righteous anger, the righteous jealousy, but there's also the desire to be gracious, the desire to say, I put my image in you, I'm going to uphold you. What does it look like to bring these two things together? And the first thing we're going to get from this chapter this morning, church, is that we were made to be in God's presence. It's, it's interesting where God picks up in chapter 33 because he begins in verse 1 by saying, I'm still going to let you go back to the promised land. He says, I'm still going to send you back. In verse 2, he says, I'm still going to send an angel before you. I'm still going to clear out all the enemies that you face. Verse 3, he says, I'm still going to bring you into this blessing of this milk and honey. Kind of going back to our, our wedding imagery this would be like God the groom telling this, this bride of his that was unfaithful on the wedding night saying, I'm still going to allow you to travel back to the place that I've prepared for you. Which is a big act of grace in and of itself. Like I, I cannot fathom in my head that level of grace. To turn right around and say, I, I literally just saw what you did 
And I'm still going to let you go back. I'm still going to let you enjoy my favor, my power, my blessing. But notice there's something that's missing in this. If you look at verse 3, God says, I'm still going to give you my favor. You're still going to go back to Egypt or to, the, to your promised land. I'm still going to give you my power. I'm still going to send my angel before you. I'm still going to go do great things for you. I'm still going to give you my blessing. I'm still going to, this land is milk and honey. It's, it's, ben, it's plentiful. It's beautiful. It's got abundance of riches. God says, I'm still going to give this to you, but I will not go with you in verse 3. He says, and I'm not going to go with you uh, lest I consume you on the way. The Hebrew there, consume, uh, complete, finish, destroy, wipe out. God says, I, you've still wronged me. Uh, if I were to go with you, my, my holiness, my righteousness would wipe out all of the sin that has taken place. So he says, it's pretty much to your benefit. And he calls Israel stiff-necked. We talked about that last week. Um, Stiff-necked in the Hebrew language was a phrase that invoked uh, a donkey being very stubborn. Uh, there are other words I won't use this morning, but that, that's kind of the language that God is using to describe his people. He says, you are stubborn in your pursuits, and what you are pursuing right now is not me. That's, that is the phrase stiff-necked that God is, is calling his, this bride that he just intended to marry. And it's, it's interesting, why well, I say it's interesting at the beginning here, as God is working through this, it seems that his punishment is not that they're going to necessarily lose something he can give them, right? What, what we would see, what I, I call out his favor, his power, his blessing, he still is giving these things to them. But what they're going to lose is his presence, and that might sound a little nitpicky this morning, like, okay, Jordan, you're like, that's just God versus the things that God can give him. Well, what's the big deal between God saying, I'm still going to give you some things, I'm just not going to go with you? Apparently, to Israel church, <laughs> this was bad. This was very bad. They did not want to hear this. If you look in verse 4, Moses calls this a disastrous word. The response of the people when God says, I'm still going to give you everything I told you, I'm just not going to go with you to be there with it. They, they mourn. And they take off all their ornaments because we see in verses 5 and 6, God had said, I want you to take your ornaments off. That whole deal is very symbolic. Remember when Israel left Egypt, they kind of plundered Egypt on the way. And they took all of Egypt's fine jewelry, all their fine clothing. And God says, you know, earlier in all these, you know, uh, temple blueprints and the priesthood blueprints, God says, all this stuff that you got, you're going to use to build the temple. God says, now take it all off and get rid of it. What he's doing is he's telling Israel, I gave you something that was going to set you apart from the rest of the world, that when the world looked at you, it was going to identify you as my people. But God says, now that I'm not going with you, you need to, don't even call yourselves my people. Take off everything that makes you look like to the rest of the world, you're mine, because I'm not with you right now. This is a deeply disturbing, it is the worst punishment for Israel. And it's, it's very telling that when God is giving this punishment, he's, he's not valuing his favor 
with his people. He's not teaching them to value his favor. Israel's not excited because they're still getting to go back to the promised land. He's, he's not teaching them to value his power. They're not excited that the angel is still going to go beforewards and that they're still going to have their enemies driven out. They're still going to be established in the land. They're not excited about that. They're not excited about the blessing. They're not excited that God is still gifting them this land that's going to be really, really good. None of that is appealing to them. They're in despair because God is not going with them. And Moses echoes this later. We see Israel finally getting it, that they're like, no, God, no, we don't. Don't, don't tell us you're going to give us these things that we think we want if you're not going to be here with us. Moses says the exact same thing. He says in verses 12 through 13, show me now your ways, God, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Moses is essentially saying, I want to know you. God, so that I and your people would be right with you, right? So in this, God says, here's, here's what's really favorable to me, pursue knowing me. God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. In verse 14, he says, I will be with you and your life will be marked by my rest. And that phrase, sometimes we, we think about rest as like something that we would check in and check out of doing uh, like sleep, right? It has a defined period of time in the day we do it and then we move on similar to what john was talking about a couple weeks ago and understanding the the soul and the spirit alongside the body with the rest that god is talking about here is the hebrew noun nuach and it really means a place like the state of being god's not saying i'm going to give you a good nap he's not saying i'm going to give you a good season of physical rest he says you are literally going to be at peace with everything in your life. You will be at rest that I will give you when my presence is with you. And again, a second time, Moses says, No, no, God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, from every other nation... Every other people on the face of the earth, verse 15 and 16. Moses says, don't send us your favor, your power, your blessing if you're not going to go with us. He, he says, it's only your presence that actually sets us apart from the rest of the world. Moses is telling God, God, I realize that there's nothing special about us. In fact, we're no different from the world if we don't have you. And then God relents again in verse 17. The, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight. This asking for God's presence. You have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Verse 17. So now we see both Israel gets it and Moses. They get it. They're distraught thinking about life without God because they finally realized they were made for his presence. And church, when I was reading through that this week, that, that really hit me hard. Because I'm watching Israel is, just, let's just put ourselves in Israel's, Israel's spot for a second, okay? They're being told, God has said, look, I had all these great blessings, all these great promises, all these great things lined up for you. This is what life together was going to look like. And God says, I'm still going to give you all of this. I'm just not going to be there with you to enjoy it. 
And, and then from Moses' perspective, God says, look, Moses, I'm still establishing your people. I'm still establishing you as a nation. I'm still giving you everything I promised. You're still this great leader. I'm just not going to be with you. And that hit me really hard, church, because I, I don't know that I, I would have the wherewithal to respond like Israel and like Moses in that moment. I, I think there would be a very, a very large part of me that would say, okay, I mean, God, I'm going to miss you, but if you're still giving me your favor, your power, your blessing, I, I, think, I think we'll be okay. I realize that we, that seems to me to be maybe not just unique to me when you look at the church. There's a lot of things that we, we want God's favor, we want God's power, we want God's blessing, and, and at times we can get so caught up in that that we forget that what God is really after is his presence. That we really don't have this, the rest of this stuff if we don't have his presence. I, I think there's, there's been times in my life uh, where I could really easily point to and say, God, I, I want your favor in something. Uh, I, I think you, of how we, we as a culture sometimes really want to label things as Christian in order so we can go get it, Right? We, we want Christian businesses, Christian policies, sometimes even Christian people. Think about when I was dating, you know, I was just like really hoping that somebody would be a Christian so that God's favor would be on that relationship, right? That if something was, was under the favor of God, then it must have been okay. And I realized for me personally this week, man, God is looking at Israel saying, look, you can have my favor. That, that's not what makes you right with me. In fact, what God considers as his favor is when Moses says, God, please stay with us. Please don't go. Please don't send us away. Please don't give us your stuff. Give us you. Sometimes in our lives, we, we want God's power. I, I have literally, you know, been, been working through things and thought, well, you know, but if, if ultimately we're serving God's kingdom, if we're doing great things in his name, uh, we must be doing something right. Right? And I, I have for sure heard that uh, amongst other pastors and leaders in the church today. There's a lot of things that kind of get swept aside when we're doing great things in God's name. And I, I realized reading this, no, is, Israel would have been earthly doing great things in God's name if God's angel is going before them, clearing out the enemies for them to have their space. That's not what made Israel right with God. That hit me this week, church. Moses says, don't, don't send us away. Don't clear everything out if you're not going to be there. Israel mourned because they knew they didn't really have God's power without his presence. There's also times where we really want God's blessing. I think I told you guys a while ago, I, the, 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 uh, the engineer in me that loves to keep statistics on things that don't need statistics to be kept on uh, has gone back through the past two years or so and tracked, like, what are the types of things that I pray about? And I think I told you guys, like, two-thirds of my prayers in that span were like, God, I need this thing of you. 
Like, help me, and not like help me through this difficult situation. It would be like, uh, Lord, I really need you to give me this. It just tied to a physical, tangible gift. I'm not at all saying don't pray that way. I'm not at all saying God doesn't answer and hear those prayers. I've also gone back and read, and he answered pretty much all of them. Okay, That's all to God's grace. But I'm, I'm realizing I've been missing out because I'm wanting something that, a gift that God would be able to give me at times more than I actually wanted God. And just because Israel was still getting the blessing of going to the promised land, right? They're still given all of this, and yet God says, take off everything that would identify yourself before the world as my people, because if I'm not going with you, you don't really have anything. It is, it is a common and a, a dangerous trap for God's people to confuse having or pursuing his favor, his power, his blessing with having and pursuing his presence. And I love that Moses, when he gets it, he says, God, this is what sets us apart from the world. Verse 16, for how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight. How will anybody know? How will I know if I'm right with you? How will your people know if they're right with you? How will the world know if there's anything different in us than in them? How will it be known? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct? That's, that changes That changes us, church. We were made to be in God's presence. I mean, I, don't, I do not wish to oversimplify things. But truly, last week when we were celebrating like people coming to know Christ and baptizing them and celebrating that, it, it, it meant the world to me that multi, several of you guys texted me after the service and told me about how you were rejoicing. I thought that was the coolest because I realized this really is it. Like, like, this is the crux of what we're after. People coming to know Christ, people being made right with Christ, people wanting to take next steps and growing in Christ, just seeing your joy and enthusiasm over the baptisms and in hearing the stories that come out of the small groups, hearing, even if you're not physically in one of the small groups, just hearing the, the community that you're building with other people around Christ, like, that's it. That is it. We were made to be in God's presence. And as a pastor, it is the biggest win in my book when I get to see you guys taking that and running with it. That, that I, we're getting there, church. We are, we are really starting to see and value and live out what Israel was doing. So it's, again, it's, it's, it's humbling, but it's encouraging. We were made to be in God's presence. So what do we do with this? What does Moses actually do as the leader of God's people? And then also in this chapter, what do we see Israel do? If it's true we are made to be in God's presence, what we do, kind of the big umbrella, everything falls under, we work toward restoration in God's covenant. The very first thing we see Moses do in this chapter is in verse 7. He takes a tent and he pitches it outside the camp. It's a little, little too simplistic of us to say that Moses is just simply going camping. Uh, really, this is Moses building the tabernacle. 
Not the grand tabernacle with all the blueprints that we were talking about. Moses could not have accomplished that on his own. But Moses is saying, oh my gosh, if we are not right with God and we were given these blueprints to build something that's going to lead us to be right with God, I may not have all the pieces together to build the big thing now, but we got to do something. Because God, we have to be right with you. I cannot let these people not be right with you. So Moses goes and he pitches this modest tent. And he calls it the tent of meeting. He says, guys, we, we've got to be right with God. We've got to, we might not be able to build the whole temple in a week, but I can pitch a tent right now. We have to be with God. And he goes into the tent in sight of all Israel, verse 8. So he's giving them this physical reminder. They're watching Moses. And what Moses, as Moses gets it, then the people follow. That as Moses is living out what it looks like to really value being in God's presence, the rest of Israel starts to watch. And I love that the first thing Moses does is he just builds a space for him and the people to get to see why following God is so important. Verses 12 through 13, notice exactly, this is, now that Moses has pitched the tent, we see in verse 11, he's speaking face to face with God, which is a big deal. You don't really see that in the Old Testament much, that God is speaking face to face as a friend would speak to a man. This is a big deal for Moses. So what is Moses talking to God about? In verses 12 and 13, Moses says, show me your ways that I may know who you are in order to find favor in your sight. Like we said earlier, God Show us who you are. We're not right with you. We've gone off and done something else. Show us who you are. He says, consider too that this nation is your people. That consider is just not the greatest word there, church. When Moses says consider these people, he's asking God to look on them again. God strips them of their ornaments. He says, don't even identify yourselves as my people. Moses says, God... Look again. Like, see that even though they took their ornaments off, they still bear your image. Just, just because they took off this external stuff, they're still your people. Moses is asking God to look back on them, to see them for who they are, and to forgive them. And I love that the next thing God says, right after Moses asks this of God, verse 14, God says, My presence will go with you. Okay, Moses. Okay. In verses 14 through 18, God asks, or Moses asks God, God, but send your presence. One more time, he cries in verses 15 and 16, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And then after God promises to do this in verse 17, Moses a third time says, please show me your glory in verse 18. I love church when things happen in threes in scripture. It's, it's pointing towards the Trinity. Some of you may have be thinking right here, oh, well, I can think of a story where somebody was given three opportunities to cry out to God and they chose not to, being Peter, uh, after Jesus' crucifixion three times. Peter says, I don't know this God. I'm, I'm not with them. Here's Moses three times going, God, be with us. God, I'm not like, you know, poor, poor Peter. He doesn't know Peter's coming. Peter's saying, 
I don't want to be identified with you, God. Moses is saying, I don't want to not be identified with you, God, three times. And what does God do? How does he respond to to all of this, right? As the people are slowly starting to get it, as the light bulb is coming on, well, we see first verses 11 and, and 8 and 9, God comes. When his people ask for him to come, he comes. And he speaks to Moses. And he does so in a way in this cloud before the whole people that the people know that he's here. Verse 14 and 17, he agrees. He says, I, you want me, I will give myself back to you. Verse 19 through 23, he does promise to reveal his glory to Moses, and then he, he does so. He reveals his glory to Moses. He's gracious. He spares Moses' life at this point. There hasn't been the sacrificial system set up yet, so Moses is you know, still being cleansed. So God spares Moses, but he does reveal his glory to Moses. And the dot cherry on top of the cake, if you call it. Verse 19, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God says, I will forgive and I will make you right with me. What does Israel do? Verse 10, when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and they worshiped. So as Israel realizes they've been broken from God, as Israel is watching Moses make going back to God the most important thing and just staying with God, what they need to do, Israel rises from their tents. They step out of their houses at their front doors and they worship. And it is, it's a really cool picture that Israel, even though Moses is outside the tent, they stay in front of their houses when they worship. They don't leave. Because symbolically, just the Hebrew world had so much symbolism and what they did, it, it would have communicated something. If Israel, if all the Israelites had left their homes and gone to the specific place to worship God, what would happen at the end of their worship? They would have to go back. Here's Israel telling God, we're not going to leave our houses to go worship you somewhere else because we want you here, right? Like, we don't want to have to end our time of worship and go back somewhere else. God, we don't want to leave your presence again. They're saying, God, I want you in my life. I want you in my home. I want you in my family. I don't want to leave your presence ever. Please come and be with us again. This, this whole chapter, church, is Moses going to God, Israel showing up saying, we, ju- we realize what we've done. We realize you are righteous and holy beyond us. You have every right to be angry, every right to be jealous. Forgive us. And not only forgive us, but take us back. Because we don't want anything apart from you. And when God hears this of his people... When he sees this in Moses, this one who's going to point us forwards to Jesus, God says, now you get it. This is the heart I want you to have. This is who I have called you to be. Now you can be my people and you can join me in the work of putting my world back together. God says the light bulb has gone off, church. 
So who are we? We are people made to be in God's presence. What do we do? We work to pursue this restoration in his covenant. So what does this practically look like as we close this morning? Three things I want to quickly share with you. I think when it comes to how we, how we live our lives towards unbelievers, those we would say, you know, outside of Israel from this Old Testament language here, we pursue reconciliation for those outside the body, right? What we want to do is to make a space in our personal lives, in our church, make a space for those who don't know God to come to know God, right? Now, that, that certainly starts here. We, we would want people who don't know Christ to be comfortable coming and hearing the word, even if it, you know, if worship maybe is a little odd to people who don't know Christ that we stand and sing for 30 minutes once a week. I mean, that doesn't tend to happen most places. But we want to build spaces for people who don't know Christ to come to know Christ. But this is not just something we do corporately as a church. I mean, we, this needs to carry forth into the way that we live. Is, is, there, is there time in our lives to invest in other people? I mean, you guys, some of you are still in the workforce. Some of you are about to enter the workforce. You, you are around so many people on a, on a regular basis. And if you're in seasons where you're not, around as many people as you're used to, maybe your job or your health, it's been safer for you to be at home. I mean, we're, we're given the opportunity to pray, church, and that is not a lesser work, that is not a sideline work, that is a active work. Jesus teaches, I mean, just so we're understanding this is not just Moses and Israel, this is something Jesus echoes. Jesus says that the entire Old Testament is undergirded by the two commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 40. He's saying, what have I called you to do? What was the whole Old Testament pointing you to do? Work towards reconciliation between you and God and others and God. And then Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, he says, what do I want you to do? He says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lead them to be right with God. And also teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Build these spaces. Make reconciliation. Church, there's a lot of things that we are told as a church we need to do in the way we interact with our culture, reconciliation is rarely one of the ones that gets said. Because it makes us feel like we're going to be downtrodden, makes us feel like we're going to be doormats. It may be uncomfortable, but it is very clearly what God has said his people are to do, who he wants his people to be. Jesus even kind of pointed out in Luke 18, 11 through 12, he says, look, your tendency is going to be to want to be like the Pharisees, the ones who stand before God and say, God, I praise you that I am not like everybody else. And the same parable Jesus says, the tax collector shows up and says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one of the two do you think represents the heart of God? 
we pursue reconciliation for those outside of the body. We want to be with others, to lead them to know God as we are coming to know God. What do we do within the body? We pursue unity. Church, that's a, that's a lost art in our world right now. Being able to work with people who don't think or don't act or just come from different backgrounds. John puts it like this in 1 John 5, 1 through 2. He says, whoever loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Speaking about believers. So by this we know that we love the children of God. This is how we know if we are loving the church, loving Christ's bride, loving our fellow believers well, when we love God and obey his commandments. Right? So John says when we are striving to love God well in our personal lives, when we are striving to obey God's commandments, it's going to manifest itself in working in unity in the body. So it's not too much of a stretch to say if we're not working towards unity, either our love of God or our obedience of his commandments is off. One of those two. Jesus left his disciples to this, this work. I mean, John is writing this saying, hey guys, this, this is what Jesus was telling us to do. Like, we get this now. We pursue reconciliation for those outside the body. We pursue unity for those inside the body. And what do we do just in all things? We pursue knowing God. Jesus uses this metaphor in John 14. Some of you guys have, are probably familiar with it when Jesus says, you know, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a room for you. That's not an accident. Uh, that's the same wedding imagery that we've been seeing in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I'm the groom at this case. I'm going back to get a place ready. What do, what do I leave you to do? Like, how can you show me that you're faithful, that you are presenting yourself, that you're getting ready for me to come back and get you? As you say, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Later in verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And then here's the presence piece. Jesus even says, and we will come to him and make our home with him. The presence piece comes again in verse 26. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Jesus says, as you are pursuing knowing me, we're literally, like, I will come and give you my presence. I will come help you to this end. Just as God says, the second Israel turns to look to God. He comes and speaks to Moses, right? God's not waiting for Israel to, to build the full tabernacle and to go through all the sacrifices. He's not setting this standard of perfection that he's saying, you have to meet this before I come back to you. The second God's people start to look to reconciliation, God shows up and he walks them through the process. Jesus says it's the same thing, okay? We are singing about this, this freedom that we have in Christ, this, this being made right with God, thanking God for how he has saved and redeemed us. Church, God is not expecting us to have to be at some spiritual level or knowledge or ability at this moment when we are coming to know him. Because his promise is that he will come to be with us and he will grow with us. And Christ is pointing his audience back, guys. I mean, this is this is why we're here in Exodus. What Jesus was doing in the early church is exactly what God was doing with Israel. It is the same testimony in Scripture. 
And I want to in, encourage you because after, after watching our reaction last week to the baptism, I was like, I think we get it. Like, I, I think I'm seeing you guys go, this is, this is what's worth celebrating. This is what I need to be working towards. We've, we've now been in the small groups church for six months. I don't know if you guys have realized that it's been, okay, it's been five and a half months. We're almost to six months. But I'm, I'm, I'm hearing stories of people's hearts being different. I'm hearing testimonies of what you guys are learning. I, if you're not in one of our small groups, I'm hearing stories of how you're engaging with other people, that you're literally leading them to be right with God. We had, uh, praise the Lord, we had the opportunity to celebrate one of those last weekend. I mean, it's, it's a big deal, okay? When we hear this this morning, this, this should cut us deep because there are a lot of, there's a lot of voices that will, that will tell us what the church is supposed to do and who we are to be. But God's word is clear, church, and, and I see it. I'm excited to get to be your pastor and to shepherd you through this. And I'm excited for whatever God is going to do in the fall as we get to minister to college students, as we continue to you know, partner with Agape and just see all that God is doing in the New River Valley. I, I, I'm excited, church. So as we, as we close this morning, let's, let's pray together. You say, Lord of all being, there is one thing that deserves my greatest care that calls forth my ardent desires. That is, that I may answer the great end for which I am made, which is to glorify thee who has given me being and to do all the good I can for my fellow men. Verily, life is not worth having if it be not improved for this noble purpose. Yet, Lord, how little is this the thought of mankind? Most men seem to live for themselves without much or any regard for thy glory or for the good of others. We earnestly desire and eagerly pursue the riches, honors, pleasures of this life as if they supposed that wealth or greatness or merriment could make their immortal souls happy. But alas, what false, delusive dreams are these? How miserable ere long will those be that sleep in them. For all our happiness consists in loving thee and being holy as you are holy. God, may we never fall into the tempers and the vanities, the folly, the busyness of the present world. It is a place of inexpressible sorrow, a vast empty nothingness. God, we have seen that so clearly the past few years. Time is a moment of vapor. Its enjoyments are empty bubbles, fleeting blasts of wind from which nothing satisfactory can be derived. Give me grace always to keep in covenant with thee. Give me grace always to reject as a delusion a great name here or a great name hereafter, together with all sinful pleasures or profits. Help me to know continually that there can be no true happiness, no fulfilling of thy purpose for me apart from a life lived in and for the son of thy love. It is encouraging, Lord, that we are getting to see this, that the light bulb is going off. 
Father, just as Moses and Israel were understanding it, we are grateful for the perfect example you've set before us in Christ. And we're grateful for the time and the season that you've given us as New River Fellowship to worship together, to learn together, to grow together, to start to figure out how to put these, these pieces together. God, it is a good and a glorious time to be alive with you. In your holy name we pray. Amen.